Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Josh, co-founder of Urban Valor. Welcome to another episode of the Urban Valor podcast. Our guest today is Marine veteran Elliot McKenzie. Elliot was born addicted to drugs because of his mother's drug use while pregnant. He was placed in a foster home, went to a paramilitary high school, and enlisted into the Marine Corps Infantry as a rifleman. Elliot and his battalion served in Operation Iraqi Freedom and suffered the loss of 16 Marines on their deployment. Upon transitioning, he almost went to jail for throwing a knife at his brother, ended up homeless, and ultimately became an RMB singer recording his own albums. Elliot has sung the national anthem nearly a hundred times for organizations such as the Dodgers, Lakers, Rams, San Francisco Giants, and several other professional sports organizations. If you enjoy this episode, go give us a five-star rating and leave a comment to help support our veterans. The bigger the community, the bigger the impact. If you'd like to contribute your story to Urban Valor or know anyone else who may, reach out to us on Instagram at Urban Valor TV, or you can email us at team at UrbanValor.com. Enjoy the show. So my name is Elliot McKenzie. I served in the U.S. Marine Corps from 2003 to 2007, and I got out as a corporal. So it's interesting because my recruiter signed me up as 0311 Infantry because I wanted to. But then in recruit training, I got picked up to do security forces, and I was in presidential support duty. And then I did, uh, I saw I was an eighth and I for a little bit. And oh, wow. then um, from there, I went to 0311. So I had two MOSs. So I was an 8152 and then an 0311. My childhood was blessed, to say the least. So long story short, I was born addicted to drugs. Uh, my biological mother was a drug addict, did a lot of drugs and alcohol while she was pregnant with me. Um, after I was born, um, I was taken from her and put into foster care. I was adopted about a year and some change into my life. And I was adopted by this amazing woman who had already adopted two other kids because she couldn't have kids biologically herself and she really wanted to have kids. So she adopted two, two kids before me and then me. And so I was raised in an amazing mixed family, um, white mother, no father, uh, Hispanic brother, and then a white sister. So it was a really blended family. Uh, we grew up in Cerritos, California uh, in the 90s and the early 2000s. And so it was a really interesting upbringing in that not only that part of it but also the area where i was in was really mixed so i didn't see color um i got i had black friends i had white friends i had hispanic friends i had asian friends i had indian friends i had friends of all colors the uh the high school that i went to was one of the most racially diverse high schools in the country at the time that i went there back in 2000 to 2003 um I went to two, two, uh, two high schools, actually. I went to uh, Gar High School, which is a traditional high school, and then I went to a school called Southeast Academy, which is a kind of like an ROTC high school in a way where what they do is they have, it's run by two former Marine Corps drill instructors and former police officers. And so imagine taking Marine Corps boot camp, the police academy, and high school and mixing all three of them together. Wow. That's Southeast Academy where they wear camouflage uniforms like they wear digital camis like Marines do um, some days. And then other days they're wearing like law enforcement style uniforms like the dress uniforms that police wear. Um, and then certain days they're wearing just regular clothes. And they do drill and ceremonies. They learn about the military. They learn about law enforcement. Um, they have the whole discipline. They do uh, physical fitness, PE, PE training or not PE, but PT. Mm. Um, and then mixing all that in with high school. So it's almost like... These kids are like in high school, recruit training, and also a police academy at the same time. Wow. And so it's this really awesome high school that gives kids a lot of discipline. It gives them a lot of drive. 
It helps them mature a lot faster. Um, you have to be accepted into this school. It's like an honor to go to this school. So I went to that high school and then I went to GAR. Uh, graduated in 2003 and then immediately joined the Marine Corps after that. My next question is going to be what inspired you to go into the military? But right. I mean, being part of a school like this, I mean, I, I'm sure you got lots of inspiration from school. Right. Um, but is there anything uh, other than the, the schooling that inspired you to want to join the military? Absolutely. So my inspiration for joining the Marine Corps, the first thing that comes to my mind is that old school Marine Corps commercial of the guy with the NCO sword slaying that fireball dragon yeah. on the bridge. <laughs> that commercial stood out to me so much. Um, but honestly, it was the desire to really make my family proud. I wanted to do something that would make my family proud, make the country proud. And then college really wasn't an option for me. I wasn't academically inclined as a kid. I failed classes. I struggled with my grades in high school. And so I never even really looked at college as an option. And so uh, joining the military was an option that I knew would work for me because it fit into my personality as well. Like I, I played football, I was on swim team, I was very athletic in high school. And so I knew that the Marine Corps would be a good fit for me because it was known, or it still is known as a very physically demanding uh, branch of service. It's the most physically demanding branch that's out there. Um, and so it was a good fit for my personality. Recruit training was uh, interesting, to say the least. Uh, goods and bads. So the bad first. Uh, everybody knows about the rifle range. Uh, we had a recruit commit suicide on the rifle range. That was wow. a shocker. Uh, we were at the rifle range and we had ceased fire. And to my right, like, I don't even know how many targets over. I think it was like 10 targets over. We just heard one rifle crack go off and then all of a sudden all the drone instructors just came and got us ceasefire pull off your rifle everybody and, and we found out later on that a kid had killed himself wow. um recruit training for me the process of it was pretty easy because i knew that i wanted to be a marine and i knew that i was going to join the marine corps pretty early in high school i'd say sophomore year maybe and so I had years to prepare. So I watched YouTube videos. I did physical fitness at home. I went for runs after school in high school every day. I would come home from, from high school, drop my backpack, change into PT gear, and then go for like a four, four mile run after school because I knew I was gonna be running in boot camp. I studied, like I, online I found like the general orders. I memorized the general orders. Um, so I did whatever I could do. And then also going to Southeast Academy really helped because I knew drilling ceremonies already going in. I knew what to expect because that school is run by two former Marine Corps drill instructors. So I was like, I know what to expect in recruit training because now I have drill instructors in my face now in high school. So when I go do it for real, it's not that different. Mm. Um, so I was really well prepared for recruit training when I went in. Um, even my recruiter, I remember, uh, he was like, you're one of the most driven kids we've ever had in our office. Like, I didn't have to do anything. He was like, you knew exactly what you wanted to do. You came in here prepared. And I don't know if you know about, uh, you remember the delayed entry program? Yeah. So I was in the delayed entry program for a year before I went in. And they made me like the guide for the delayed entry program. And so we would do drill ceremonies and training and PT and all that shit before uh, I actually went to recruit training. And so they made me the guide for that. And so the process was really easy for me because of the fact that I was so well prepared when I went in. Um, 
the, the things that really stood out to me and like were, I guess, challenging for me were the academic parts. Cause like I said, I wasn't very academically inclined in high school. Mm -hmm. So taking the academic tests, memorizing certain things, um, that was the biggest challenge for me. And then I got a surprise. So I did music my entire childhood. I started playing drums in fifth grade. I sang in gospel choir. I loved singing my entire childhood. Everybody that knew me in, in my, my uh, youth knew that about me. Music's been a part of my life since I was a tiny little kid. And so I got a call from my senior drill instructor one day, not a call, but like he yelled at me, Mackenzie, come over here. And I, he was in the duty hut. He was like, come to the back of the duty hut to our office. I was like, yes, sir. I go back there and there's a radio sitting on the desk and I'm sitting there at attention, not knowing what the hell's going on. And he just goes and hits play on the radio. And it's R. Kelly, I wish I, or I believe I could fly. And he's like, sing, I heard about you. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> and so every field day from that day on, which ended up being about the last six weeks, um, I had to go into the duty hut and sing, I Believe I Can Fly by R. <laughs> Kelly. Cause he found out, cause I guess my recruiter had contacted him somehow yeah. and told them all about me. And he's like, oh, he loves to sing. And so they started making me sing in recruit training. Oh, thank you, recruiter. Jesus, <laughs> man, threw you under the bus, huh? Yeah, I, I was pissed because I didn't even know my recruiter was gonna show up for graduation, but he showed up for graduation. Nice. And he had this giant smile on his face and I knew exactly why when he showed up and I was like, what did you do? Wow, Yeah, that's so, cool, man. Yeah. He's got some singing lessons in there in boot camp. <laughs> um, so what unit did you get dropped to straight from boot camp? So I went to uh, MOS school and then I went to security forces um, and I was with First Fast for like six months because my orders got messed up. Mm -hmm. So the way it went was that in recruit training, I got selected for presidential support duty, which is a part of security forces. So I was supposed to go from MOS school to security forces school to 8th and I, directly to 8th and I. But for some reason... Um, my orders got messed up and I got sent to first fast, um, from, uh, security forces school. Mm -hmm. And so I spent about five, six months in first fast while they fixed that problem. And I, I had to like wait for my orders to get corrected. So I went to first fast for like six months and then I went to eighth and I, um, a lot of people might not know, uh, presidential support duty is a small section of, uh, security forces where there's a small handful of Marines that are selected to basically help guard the president of the United States. That requires a very lengthy background check. Mm. While you're doing that background check, which takes a year to a year and a half, um, you get stationed at 8th and I, and you're doing guard duty there, you're doing guard duty at other locations around uh, DC. And um, so I was there and then um, I got NJP'd from there. Cause oh. I, yeah, I had a, a sergeant that didn't like me because this was the point in my Marine Corps time where I kind of, some Marines rebel in a little bit of a personal way where the Marine Corps is very good at making you only care about the Marine Corps. Green on green PT gear all the time. We want you to think of Marine this, Marine that, all the, and it got to a point where I was at 8th and I, it kind of got to a point where I was like, what about me? Like, I enjoy doing this kind of stuff over here. Like, what about my free time? What about, and it's just like, it got too much. Mm. And so I kind of rebelled a little bit. And like, for example, there was one day when we had PT one morning 
and our platoon sergeant didn't tell us exactly what type of PT gear to show up in. So I, sh I showed up in rainbow, which means, you know, civilian gym clothes, basically, instead of green on green. And this was the same NCO that ended up uh, uh, NJPing me. And it was just stuff like that. Like, I, I, I'll be honest, I did it on purpose. I wanted to, because I was like, I'm tired of wearing green mm. on green. Can't we wear comfortable clothes? Can't we wear gym clothes? Like, just regular clothes? It doesn't matter. Yeah. And so, you know, he, he, he and I butt, butted heads a lot mm -hmm. in ways like that, because he saw that in me and he was super moto super typical i'm a lifer type of marine and so we butted heads and so i was like five minutes late for a formation one day and he ended up having me uh njp'd for uh i can't remember exactly what it was but uh what what is it tardiness or whatever the fuck they call it when you're not on time uh when sometimes you're absent. it's awol awol some shit like that i forget That's what it crazy. was crazy i was just gonna but, say but yeah, I didn't even know that. I didn't know like being late to formation is considered being AWOL. AWOL. Yeah. yeah. Absent without leave. Without leave, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so he had me NJP for that. And then I went from 8th and I to uh, 1st Battalion, 5th Marines from there. And so I was with 1-5 for the rest of my time in the Marine Corps. Wait, so because you got NJP'd, you, have to, you had to lead the unit? Yeah, no, because part of the requirement for presidential support duty is that you don't have any njps on your record mm -hmm. so as soon as you get one you're out mm -hmm. and so yeah they hold a very high standard i remember being in boot camp and them looking for marines to specifically go to eight to nine and i uh, correct me if i'm wrong but mm -hmm. i think there's like a height requirement mm -hmm. um like six, a, six one i think it is yeah, yeah. all that mm -hmm. uh and a clean record and all that yeah. good stuff so yeah. wow and then he njps you for that for man. being That's... fucking late because he i knew what it was he, did, he was just looking for an excuse wow but the, here's the funny part though after i got out of the marine corps later on i stayed in contact with a lot of my marines i found out later so let me rewind so that nco that sergeant always had a giant stack like 50 freaking ribbons i'm over exaggerating but it was like a giant stack mm -hmm. it looked like he had been in since vietnam or something and everybody was kind of like that's a lot for a sergeant and nobody ever questioned it, but I found out later on after I got out that that stack was completely fake and he was uh, faking like awards and he got kicked out of the Marine Corps for it. He was on. walking around with ribbons that he hadn't earned. On fucking base? Yeah, like. Like I hear about people yeah. doing that, like it's easy to do that and get and get by like in the civilian world, but fucking on a Marine Corps yeah, base? Yeah, active duty, eighth and I, at wow. eighth and I, wearing uh, Charlies and dress blues. Holy with ribbons shit. that he hadn't earned and i don't know how it happened because i was already out but i heard word from a veteran that i knew while i was there he was like yeah he got fucking njp'd and kicked out because that stack he had was all fake yeah he only had apparently like four ribbons that he actually earned and the rest of them were all bullshit wow man so the marine corps just was like nope get out this fucking guy yeah checking into the fleet was uh, a little intimidating because i knew that i was going from like the cush eighth and i comfortable um very little infantry training other than mos school uh soi to like the actual like units that do it like these are the units that deploy these are the units that are on the front lines that go to iraq or afghanistan or wherever we're going to end up going um, these are the units where the shit actually happens and so that check-in day i remember it uh i parked in my alphas got out of my car grabbed my c-bag and was walking over and i was just like okay let's do this but at the same time i was like i want to learn i i got there with the mindset of like a little bit of intimidation but a lot of like drive to like fit in and 
learn the task because I was like, this is my MOS. This is what I signed up for. This is my primary MOS. Um, so let's do this. And so it was a very driven mindset where I wanted to learn the task and be able to accomplish it so that if I ever had to deploy, um, I wouldn't die. <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, did you end up deploying with them? Yeah. So in 2005, we deployed to Ramadi, Iraq uh, for seven months from February to September of 05. Yeah. Mm. And what was that experience like for you? So going to Iraq for me was, number one, a culture shock. That was my first time ever being outside of the U.S. Um, and so it was a matter of like, learning a new culture because you're around these people. Cause my unit, we did foot patrols. We didn't drive around in Humvees. And so we were like face to face with these people walking in their city. And so it was a big culture shock seeing the way they dress, the fact that they didn't speak English. We had to learn um, their language a little bit before we before we flew over there. And then um, weather was a huge shock too, because, you know, I was here at Pendleton. And so the hottest it gets here is, maybe a hundred on a bad day in summer back then. And we went from that to 130 on an average day mm. during the day and then 105, 110 at night. And so that heat, that dry heat that I hadn't experienced ever in my life before, plus just the number of the, the high of 130, it was, it was a shock. And so it took me probably a good two two and a half months to like physically adapt to the fact that I was like pouring sweat every day, um, had to carry all that gear um, in that heat. And then we were walking, like I said, we didn't do Humvee patrols, we did foot patrols. And so we were walking anywhere between three and I'd say six to seven miles a day every time we did a patrol. Because wow. we would leave um, Snake Pit, which was our base, and then we would literally just walk through the city of Ramadi um, for different reasons and then come back. And so those walks would depend, the, the distance would depend on the mission, but the physical adaptation that I had to go through was intense too. Yeah. Do you have a different, was each patrol like a different mission or what were you guys trying to like gather intel or what was going on there? Um, yeah, so we had different missions. So for example, uh, HVT missions. So we'd have a name that we had to go find, somebody that we would actually specifically look for. Um, some missions we would literally just walk around until we got shot at because of the, um, the ROEs over there, um, the rules of engagement were that we were not allowed to shoot until we got shot at first. And so we had to get shot at. If we wanted to know who our enemy was, we had to wait for them to shoot at us. And so there were a lot of patrols where we would literally just wait until somebody shot at us. That was what we were doing. We were just walking wow. out of the wire, just patrolling and just waiting. Okay, somebody shoot at us, please. <laughs> and a lot of the times nothing would happen, but a good amount of time somebody would do pop shots and then we get into firefights and things like that. Um, and then we would also team up with the army um, once a week to do sweeps at night. And so the army brought in special vehicles that would like my almost like minesweepers in a way because there were a lot of there were a lot of ieds in the, in the road and at night once a week i think it was if i remember correctly every thursday night um we would we would be on foot next to the vehicles the humvees and these big sweeper vehicles i can't remember what they were they were army vehicles and they would sweep the city for ieds and we would do that as well those were missions that we had on a weekly basis mm. um so yeah the missions would vary depending wow. on what was happening so you're going on like essentially bait patrols you know like that's that's yeah. wild yeah. um 
Did you ever uh, talk to me about the most, uh, did you have any scary moments out there? Oh um, yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Uh, we got into firefights, I'd say, if you were put an average on it, I'd say at least once every week and a half, maybe two weeks. Mm. Um, a lot of it was just really small pop shots though. A lot of guys would pop out of corners, shoot like two or three times and then take off and run. Um, there was a couple of good firefights though. I remember one specifically where uh, we had like locations on top of rooftops mm. in buildings. So we took over certain buildings and we were on rooftops looking out into the city and they knew where these locations were. So I remember one night when we were, I was on QRF and Marines were up on the roof. We were just kind of like firewatch, if you will. And all of a sudden we just started hearing rounds hit the building, just cock, 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 and then boom up top. And apparently what had happened was a bunch of dudes surrounded the, the, our building without us somehow, without us fucking seeing it. And then all at the same time, they popped up and just started shooting at us at the top, the Marines at the top. Mm. So I grabbed my gear, ran up there, and then the boom was they had a mortar that had landed on top of the roof. One of my friends lost his leg from the knee down. Oh, wow. Um, and that was, was that the first? No, that wasn't the first fight. That was the first big firefight. Because prior to that, I'll wait for that. Yeah, how convenient, huh? Right? <laughs> Air support. <laughs> yeah, they, I usually I get it all the time because you know Pendleton's right here, so they yeah. go back and forth. Um, so yeah, so prior to that, it was a lot of just the smaller little pop shot stuff. Um, that was the first big firefight, the first lengthy firefight. That one probably lasted about thirty minutes. Oh. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of that. Did you guys uh, take any casualties? Yeah, we lost 16 Marines while we were over there. Oh, wow. Yeah, man. my uh, battalion commander got killed. Uh, he, not Wait, my company commander, sorry, my company commander got killed, uh, Captain Maloney, Captain uh, John Maloney. Maloney. He was probably the best leader that I had ever experienced in a, in a company commander um, in that he kept us in the loop. A lot of leadership in the military is very good at like telling you what to do but not telling you why you're doing it but he was the opposite. He would literally hold company formations and be like, we're about to do this and this is why. So that Marines from the highest level all the way down to PFCs knew exactly why we were doing what we were doing. And he was really good at explaining things to us mm. and keeping us in the loop. And I love that about his leadership style. And even now I use that in my personal life where if I'm in, in charge of people or if I lead, I keep everybody in the loop, even from the highest to the lowest person on the totem pole and it comes from him mm. and he was killed he was uh killed uh they were on a foot patrol but for some reason he decided to go in a humvee and this humvee hit an ied upside down and then they got a uh, small arms fire as well so mm. it was an ambush um i was on rest on this patrol so we would leave about I want to say six to seven Marines back from each patrol just to kind of rotate, give people a break. I was on that rest during that patrol when he got killed. Um, but yeah, he died. Um, the Lance Corporal that was in the Humvee with him died. And then uh, overall 16 Marines died from our battalion, including wow, those two. Man. Sorry to hear that. <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's combat. Yeah. It sucks. But. Um, did you have any, uh, you know, I know you're in war, but did, did, do you have any good memories while you're out there, like downtime, uh, maybe some of the shit that you were doing with each other during downtime, you know, some of the things people talk about is playing spades or right. you know, just dip, doing different things when you get the opportunity to, to try to unwind. Right. 
So for me, the fun things that come to mind were actually the interactions that we had with the civilians in mm. Iraq, the Iraqi civilians. Two things come to mind, and it's always about food, right? Um, <laughs> so we would work with the security forces that were out there. Mm -hmm. um, and this first thing that comes to mind is we were sitting outside on like a, like a, check, like a checkpoint with these guys, and we were training them on how to operate a checkpoint. And one Iraqi security guy shows up in a Jeep with this giant silver bowl. Like, I don't even know how big it was. And he's like walking over, carrying, he's like, come, come, Americans, come. And we all go over there like, what's this? It's this giant bowl of like Iraqi rice. I don't know what they called it, but it was so good. And I remember this was a cultural change for me too, was I was like, where are the spoons at? How do we eat this? He was like, no, just eat with your hands. And so all of us just literally just started reaching into this giant bowl and just eating it like animals out of our hands. Nice. But it was so fucking good. I don't know what they call it, but I wish I knew because I would find it and eat it every day right now. Yeah. But it, was, it tasted similar to like rice pilaf, if you will, mm. or like a Mexican kind of rice. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was the first experience. And then the other experience that I remember, we would, on certain patrols, we would take over rooftops in actual people's houses. So we would do like a door knock, say, hey, we need to use your rooftop to look into the city, figure out what's going on for like an hour or two. We're gonna be here, we won't hurt you, whatever. So the families would let us in, let us access the roof to do that. There was this one family though, we were there overnight and we knocked on the door, went in and there were Marines on the rooftop and then there were Marines in the house, like we would rotate QRF and then on top. And so I was on QRF in the, in the house. And I remember the wife was cooking and we didn't know why, I thought whatever. We kind of just did our own thing. And she ended up cooking us like an entire, I don't even know, like five course meal. And we had rice, we had chicken, we had, uh, I can't remember what it was, but it was like this um, cinnamon, it's almost like a, it's, it's, it's like the Mexican dish, that white rice with cinnamon on it. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, the uh, arroz con leche. Yeah, it's like that, but the Iraqi version of that. Mm. That shit was so fucking good. <laughs> I will never forget that shit. I kept going back for more. She had a, a bowl of it, and I was just like, I'm just wow. going to eat this whole thing. Um, and so those, those two are the first things that stand out as far as like positive experiences in Ramadi. Because yeah. when you're not fighting the people and shooting at them or they're shooting at you, the ones who are actually trying to be friendly and they actually want to support you for being there and trying to help them those are the those are the moments that stood out to me yeah or the ones where they're able to humanize you and, right and know like yeah this is a, a a marine or probably they just look at everybody as a soldier or whatever right um but they're like they're also humans you know and they treat you that, that way but also while you're telling that story i was thinking about how much courage it takes for them to allow you in their place on their roof knowing that if the enemy sees that they could potentially get their home blown up. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Because then they become the enemy of the enemy because mm -hmm. they're assisting us. Yeah. And so they put their lives at risk to help us out. That's yeah. fucking wild, man. Just like the translators. Yeah. yeah. Now, did you guys go over to Iraq? Did you fly or did you go on ship? We flew. You flew? Yeah. Okay. We flew. So we took off from Riverside. I think it was March Air Force Base. Mm hmm um, so we drove from Pendleton to March Air Force Base, flew from March over to uh, Ireland, had a layover in Ireland, and then flew from Ireland to Kuwait, and then got into uh, KC-130s in Kuwait, flew from Kuwait into Iraq, 
and then got into uh, vehicles and drove into Ramadi from mm. there. Do you yeah. eat a lot of MREs out there? Actually, no. Believe it or not, we actually had uh, like a small little makeshift chow hall on really? our base at Snake Pit. And wow. so they would bring in food, like uh, hot meals. Really? So like, I don't know how often it was, but it was pretty often, at least weekly, we'd have uh, a truck that would come in and bring hot food mm. and we would eat that. Like, nice. I think the whole time I was in Ramadi, I think I had maybe five MREs, something like that. Nice. And the rest of the time it was like regular chow food, like yeah. a hot food. Yeah. And what was it like to come back from Iraq? Um... So I had PTSD and I didn't know I had PTSD. So I had a girlfriend at the time and for some odd reason, the first place she wanted to go was a nightclub. And mm. I remember the loud music and the lights flickering from the DJ was bothering the shit out of me and pissing me off, but I had no idea why. Um, so coming home from Iraq uh, was a very long transition but i didn't know it was a long transition because there's a lot of combat vets who get home from combat that don't even realize they have ptsd or they have symptoms of ptsd mm. um, and they just think they're just having issues adjusting or whatever it's just a rough time um, and i was one of those guys and so i wasn't even aware that i had ptsd for years um for about probably like a year and a half um was when i officially like hit the va after it was after i got out of the marine corps mm -hmm. when i found out um, so yeah, so transitioning when I got back uh, was a challenge for sure. Mm. Now, when you got back, um, you know, it was at 05, you said? Mm -hmm. So yeah. in 2005, coming back from a combat deployment right there, um, is there a process in the Marines that they put you guys through? Like, do you, some type of, you know, uh, winding down process from after being in combat? I know there wasn't when I was there, but I'm just curious if things have changed. There was, but there wasn't. What I mean by that was the Marine Corps would do a check in the box, meaning when we were on our way back, we had to have like, a, I can't remember exactly what it was, but our, we had a, it was like a platoon at a time and it was like a, a counselor, like a up in front of the room, just talking to us. Like you might experience these symptoms. You might go through this. You might go through that. If you have any of this, this and this, or you experience these things here, Make sure you see a therapist, you know, make sure you see a doc so that you can get help. Um, and it was like also a lot of surveys. So like it was like post-deployment surveys. Um, do you feel this? Do you have this mood? Yes or no? Um, blah, blah, blah. It was a lot of that. But there was no like specific one-on-one -on -one intense like here, let's sit down and talk about your specific experience and see how you're doing with each Marine that came home from Ramadi. Mm. It was more of like a, let's just treat them as a group, give them a little bit of therapy, give them a little bit of a, a, like a speech, if you will. Like, if you feel this, do this. And then they check the box and that was yeah. it. Typical, we did it, you know. Yeah, typical government shit. Uh, yeah. They want us to put this in place, so let's just do it because it's here and we exactly. can say we did it and check it off, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. Not really interested in really, you know, digging deep and really making sure uh, everybody's straight, right? Right, yeah. That's yeah. how it felt. Mm -hmm. So um, you stayed, you were still in the Marines for another two years after getting back. No. Is that right? Yeah, two years. Yeah, because I got out in 07. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and what, what, what was the remaining of your enlistment like? So we went to uh, Okinawa, Japan in 06. Oh, wow. Um, so I was part of 31st Mew, so mm -hmm. Marine Expeditionary Unit, for those who don't know. 
Um, that was more like a vacation. That was fun, mm. straight up fun. Um, I think I think I needed that honestly. Um, so that was again another culture shock, another environment shock. Um, the first thing I remember about Oki was the fucking humidity. I remember getting off the plane and literally starting to sweat five seconds after mm. the door opened and I walked out. Um, and I remember having to wear those white t-shirts with PT gear for the first, I think it was two months because you are adapting to the, the humidity out there and you might, there's a lot of Marines who passed out during runs and it mm. was, it was bad. Um, but it was fun. That was like a vacation, um, karaoke nights out in the city. Uh, that was my first time ever getting so drunk that other Marines had to carry me back to my barracks room. Um, so Oki was fun. Um. Funny story, uh, we were doing, we did a lot of training out there because that's pretty much what you do when you're out there. You just mm -hmm. train for six months. It's just an opportunity to train in a different environment for different situations and different settings. And we were doing foot patrols through this giant field, like tall grass, probably about this high. And I remember the first Marine in the front of the line steps into this field and just whoosh, locusts that are like probably about this fucking big. And we just looked at each other like, are we doing this? Let's do this. And we literally were just walking through this field, locusts just covered and just like that sound, that hissing sound. Yeah, that was fun. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And then we had another Marine who, uh, same patrol, walked into a banana spider um, hanging from a tree and didn't see it. So it was, it was a good time. Yeah. Okie was fun. Yeah. It was, yeah. it was a lot of training. Um, but it was also just, it was like a vacation in Japan. Did you get to, months. uh, did you get to experience, uh, any of the culture out there? Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We would go out to nightclubs, uh, went to the red light district a few mm. times. That's common out there with us. Um, yeah. especially for Marines. Yeah. <laughs> um, what else we went to, uh, so this was at a time when, I guess president, what I heard, I, I didn't know officially because I wasn't an officer. I wasn't in that office. But we heard we were on ship at the time because the way that it works is you go to Okinawa, Japan, you do training on land, and then you jump onto a Navy ship um, for about three, four months, and then you come back, and then you go home. So while we were on ship, we got word that President Obama, I think it was at the time, um, was in Indonesia. And so because of the fact that the president was in Indonesia, they wanted us to kind of like float around just in case something happened. And so we ended up getting to dock in Indonesia. We went to the Philippines. Um, and so it was an experience because I got to see different parts of the world in that region, mm. you know, and yeah. I, I really enjoyed that. Talk to me about what it was like transitioning back into the uh, civilian world after your enlistment. It was rough. Um, like I said, I didn't even know I had PTSD. So I got home from Ramadi in 05, served for another two years. I dealt with a little bit of, of like symptoms like anger and things like that. I saw a few therapists while I was in the Marine Corps, um, but right before I got out between 05 and 07. Um, so there was a couple of different documented visits with therapists, but it wasn't anything where I was like worried about myself. Um, so I got out in 07 and then immediately it like hit and so there was a so the first symptom that i experienced was anger problems um, i noticed i was always irritable everywhere i went um, specifically there was like an incident where i was walking through a, a grocery store and a guy accidentally bumped my shoulder just walking past each other completely innocent he didn't mean it 
I immediately got pissed off and I was like trying to fight. And that was when I kind of was like, okay, something's up. Like, why am I so pissed off all the time? Why am I so irritable? Why do I always want to fight people? Um, and then it went from that to a very specific incident that happened at home. So at the time I was living with uh, my brother and my mom, I went back, back home where I grew up. It was the three of us in the household before. It was the same thing after. And I was getting ready for work. I was working as a security guard at the time. And me and my older brother got into a verbal argument. My anger went from zero to 100 real quick. And I pulled the kitchen knife from the kitchen and I was like brandishing it, threatening him with it. Um, and my mom came out of her bedroom hearing us screaming at each other, seeing these two, because my brother is like six foot, I'm 5'10". And so she's like, what do I do? So she immediately gets on the phone, calls 911. I throw the knife at my brother. I'm like, F this, I'm out. I got to go to work. So I'm, I, I walked to work because the work was really close at the time. So I just walked. And on my way, uh, cops pull up to me and they're like, are you Elliot McKenzie? I'm like, yes. Put your hands behind your back. We're going to have to have a little talk. I was like, okay. So they put me in cuffs. They drive me back to my mom's house. And I got lucky in the fact that the sergeant who was with LA County Sheriff's Department who responded to that call was a former soldier in the army. And he knew about PTSD and stuff. Talked to my mom for a little bit uh, while I was in the back of the car waiting and comes back downstairs and is like, look, I'm gonna give you two options. He's like, I was in the army. My mom tells me that you're a Marine Corps veteran. You went to Iraq. He was like, I think you have PTSD because she told me that you've been experiencing anger and these other things since you got home from the, the, from the Marine Corps. Um, and she's like, he was like, I'm going to give you two options. I can treat you like a civilian and I can charge you with assault with a deadly weapon for throwing the knife at your brother and take you to jail. Or you're a brother of mine. You're in the, in the military. You're both, we're both veterans. I can drive you. I will personally drive you in my car to the VA in Long Beach and see if they can get you some help and see what they want to do for your PTSD. Cause he's like, he was like, I think you have PTSD. So I was like, I'll take option two. <laughs> so um, he drives me to the VA in Long Beach and they put me on a 5150 hole for three days to evaluate me. And that was when I realized like, oh shit, I got a real problem. Mm. Um, so they diagnosed me with PTSD, depression, anxiety, a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, and that's, that was the introduction to my transition. Wow. And um, what, what were your thoughts when they were like giving you these diagnoses and stuff and uh, like, how did it make you feel? When they were diagnosing me, I wasn't fully aware. It was, um, so I call this my gray area in my life, meaning like when my life was on pause because I made no personal or professional growth at all. I was just dealing with my mental illness. Mm -hmm. um, so being diagnosed the first time, I didn't know the gravity of how bad it was. Um, I didn't really realize until later because my symptoms would continue to get worse from that point on um, until I started to get help at a later point. Um, and so I didn't know how bad it was at that time. Um, so they were telling me, oh, yeah, you've got anger issues, you've got PTSD, you've got depression. And I was kind of like, all right, cool. I was just brushing it off. You know, like, okay, that's cool. Whatever. I got this. I got that. Thanks for letting me know. Um, and so hearing it was just kind of like, whatever for me. Mm. So what did you do to pull yourself out of that bunk that you were in? Long story short, music. 
Um, so that happened, got diagnosed, started dealing with a bunch of stuff. Um, and then I was like, I hit a point where I was like, okay, I got to do something with my life. What do I do? GI Bill. I forgot that I had paid into the, the chipper, the GI Bill. And I was talking to a couple other veterans. They're like, go to college. You need income, right? You need a job that they'll pay you a monthly stipend while you're in school. It's like, okay. I'm, I didn't think about college before, but fuck it now. Cause like it's money. Uh, they're like, yeah, they'll pay you like three grand a month to go to college and they'll pay the tuition. All that shit's covered. And you can just use that as your income. I was like, okay, cool. So I went into it thinking just, I'm going to use it for money. I don't really want to go to school, but fuck it. Um, went to school, um, changed majors like five times. Uh, was failing class after class after class. This was when my depression specifically was getting worse and worse and I didn't realize it. And my depression was so bad that there were days where I would literally lay in bed and just cry all day for sometimes two or three days at a time. Missed classes, missed final exams, missed tests. So I ended up dropping out of school and this was in 2013. And this was when I finally hit the point where I was like, I need to get some help. Like I need like this shit has to fucking stop. Like I've been struggling since I got out of the Marine Corps with all this shit. I'm not getting any better. My life's just getting worse. I need to finally get to the point where I'm making progress instead of declining. So I got help, got a therapist. Um, I went to the vet center and I got a therapist who I got lucky again. Uh, she was a former sergeant in the Marine Corps, got out of the Marine Corps and went to college, got her degree in psychology and became a therapist. And so she knew exactly what I was experiencing because mm -hmm. she was a Marine herself. Yeah. So I, I explained all my symptoms to her, all the shit that I had been through. And I told her a little bit about my childhood and how I had been doing music since I was a kid. I was in drumline in high school, choir, all that stuff. And I was taking medicine at the time, but the medicine wasn't really working uh, for depression and anxiety and all that stuff. And she was like, you know, you can use your abilities in music as a way to get through all this shit you're telling me, right? And I was like, no, what are you talking about? So she sat me down. She's like, you're in school, so I'm going to educate you like a student. And she literally educated me about the, the science behind endorphins and adrenaline and how it actually is a natural combatant to depression. And she's like, when you perform on stage, you get nervous, like you get the shakes, you get that adrenaline rush right before you go up or while you're up there after you get off, right? And I was like, yeah, like that, use that. She's like, songwriting, it's like journaling, it's like telling your stories, right? Yeah. And I was starting to put the pieces together. So she's like, use all this. And she taught me how, started doing it. And that's what ended up saving my life, literally, mm. um, music. I ended up getting off of meds. I haven't taken meds since 2015. Um, and then I just started using music and songwriting and performing as a way to naturally combat my PTSD. Nice. And where, where are you at right now with your music? Right now, I'm in the best place I've ever been in my entire life, honestly. Um, that was 2015. Um, in 2016, no, I'm sorry, that was 2013 when I met her and started that therapy. Went through therapy with her for two years, started using music as therapy. It started working, got off meds, felt a lot better. 2015 was when I was able to like, I guess you could say go back to normal and I felt good about myself and I felt like I could make progress. I re-enrolled at that college that I had dropped out of in 2013, went from failing grades to straight A's and straight B's, got on the Dean's list, got an associate's degree from there. That was a community college, transferred, ended up getting a bachelor's degree, straight A's and straight B's at the university wow. as well. 
um, and then was doing music the entire time in the background. So I was in school and then also doing music. I released my first single, which was Gunshots in 2017. Nice. Uh, did a music video for that. Uh, that kind of hit the ground running. Like I started getting calls from ABC News, uh, Spectrum News One, CBS, like all these local news channels in Southern California heard about the video and my story of going from uh, this homeless veteran to this musician now who's doing music and using music as therapy. Um, and so they loved that story. And so I got put on a lot of channels. Uh, my story got put out there. And then I ended up releasing a couple of singles after that. My debut album came out last year in 2021 called Therapy Session. Mm. Um, I'm now working on my second album, which is going to be called Follow Up because it's kind of like a follow-up appointment to a therapist. Um, and so my life now is better than it's ever been. Um, I'm, I'm doing music full-time, entertainment full-time. Um, I'm performing the national anthem for huge sports teams like the Dodgers, the Lakers, the Rams. Wow. Um, I've been up to San Francisco and performed the national anthem at a Giants game. Um, I'm performing at, I want to say like three or four different games in the next three or four months. Um, so I've performed the national anthem probably close to almost a hundred times now um, wow. over the years since then um, for either big sports events, veterans events, um, things like that. And so my life is really, really good. I've been able to take my experience and put it into song and then use that song to not only give myself therapy, but it's also, I found out now it's actually therapeutic for other people. Mm. Um, when I released for specifically gunshots, my first single back in 17, I was thinking, I'd be happy if five people, 10 people see this video and maybe one person gets something out of it. It now has over a hundred and I want to say 30,000 views, tons and tons of comments from veterans and civilians who deal with mental illness, who say the video touched them and has like helped them in their life. Um, I now have a fan base of civilians and veterans who deal with mental illness, who tell me that my music has saved their lives. I literally have like, these are a couple of these tattoos on my arms are quotes from fans of mine who literally said like, I was going to kill myself. I listened to your music and then I decided not to kill myself because of your album. Wow. Um, and so now I'm in a place where I feel like I have a purpose. I feel yeah. like what I'm doing is giving back to not only me, but also my listeners and my supporters. Wow. That's amazing, man. That, that's gotta feel great. Yeah. Um, you kind of browsed over being homeless. Oh yeah, <laughs> completely what? forgot that. Dude, part. we yeah. didn't even. Yeah, what, yeah. What, what, okay. What? So let me go back to that. So, um, oh yeah, okay. So that incident I mentioned earlier with the knife with my brother when my mom called the cops and yeah. I got taken to the VA fifty one fifty. So I was in the fifty one fifty hole for three days, seventy two hour hold, and then when I got out, I called my mom and I said, "Hey, mom, I'm out. Can you come get me? I'm going to come back home." She was scared of me. She was like, nope, you can't come back here after what you did. We don't know if you're going to try to kill your brother again. Or you're going to try to kill me. Um, you're really, really going through it right now. And we're scared of you. Me and your brother are not comfortable having you back in the house. So you got to find some other place to go. And I had a car at the time. So I got a ride back to my house. My mom was able to give me my keys and I got my car and I got a bunch of stuff from my room and I was living in my car for about a week and a half. 
And because I didn't, I didn't know about resources, which is another issue that a lot of veterans face that they don't know about the resources that are out there. And I was one of those. Mm-hmm. I didn't know I could, I didn't know transitional housing even existed. I didn't know there was a place for homeless veterans or veterans that didn't have a place to live. So I, I, I was in my car for about a week and a half. And then finally I was like, I got to do something. So I called the 5150 ward where I was at. And I said, hey, this is my situation. Since I've gotten out, I'm pretty much homeless in my car, don't know what to do. Do you guys have anything for people in my situation? And they said, yeah, we can connect you with a nonprofit. So they connected me with US Vets, uh, which is the largest nonprofit in the country, I believe, that services homeless veterans. Mm. And um, they have transitional housing for homeless veterans in Long Beach called uh, Villages of Cabrillo. And I lived at Villages of Cabrillo for, I wanna say the next year and a half of my life. So uh, I was in my car for a week and a half, and then I was at Villages of Cabrillo for about a year and a half. Wow. Yeah. What an amazing story, man. Wow. Yeah. Um, we're going to get ready to wrap it up, man, but um, any, any, any last words before we cut the tape? Um, yeah, don't fucking quit. Don't quit. Whatever it is in life that you want to do, do it. Don't fucking quit. Um, one of the biggest lessons that I've learned in my life is if there's something that you want to do, push for it, do it. Um, it's interesting how music ended up saving me because I never thought I'd get to this point because when I was a little kid, I was in choir in, in high school, stuff like that. I played drums. Music was there and I had that like inkling in the back of my mind. Like I'd love to be able to do this one day professionally as an adult when I grow up, like become a professional R&B singer or drummer or something in this, but I never really chased it. And music ended up becoming a tool for me that saved my life because it didn't come back into my life professionally or like at a, at a higher level until that therapist was like, hey, use this as therapy for yourself. You have this skill, this talent, take that talent and use it. And that is what ended up um, taking me from where I was to where I'm at now. And it's just chasing that dream that got me where I'm at. Cause I, I went from, I went from like thinking of music as like, it's a possibility to like, okay, now I'm really going to pursue this and then pursuing it. And now I'm actually living out my dream of doing it professionally. And I do what I love every single day. Um, That would be one thing. And then the other thing I would say is exactly what my shirt says. No, you're not alone. Um, one thing that I learned in my journey, I guess you can say, is that I realized that I wasn't by myself in my struggle because when I put out, for example, the gunshots music video, I put it out thinking if 10 people see this or whatever, I'll be happy. Not realizing that other people would see it and it would help them. Um, and so it helped me realize that I wasn't alone in my struggle, even though I thought I was. And so I would say... If you're struggling, if you've got issues, whatever, talk about them publicly, let it out. Tell your friends, tell your family, um, because you're gonna find out that there are other people who are dealing with probably something very similar or exactly the same thing that you're dealing with in that moment. Mm. And the two of you or the group of you can actually heal together. Wow, that's awesome, man. Thanks for being here, Elliot. Appreciate you, brother. Of course. Push it to the limit, I can't go no more. Red light, no way I'm coming back home.